Hello, I'm Emma Rice, the Artistic Director of Wise Children, and you're listening to Wise Children's Lockdown. Our lockdown project is about us finding ways of staying close to each other. On this show, I call up an old friend, play some records, and most importantly, get to chat and reminisce. Come and join us for Tea and Biscuits. Hello and welcome to Wise Children's Lockdown Tea and Biscuits. And today I'm talking with me old mucker, Paul Hunter. Hello, Paul. Hello, Emma. It's lovely to see you, speak to you. Really nice to see you too. Um, most important question is what is your biscuit of choice, be it virtual or actual? I think it would be the simple but classic uh, plain digestive. Oh, yes. I favour a yeah. plain hobnob. Oh, I, I, they tend to be they tend to be in our house very filled and covered with chocolates a lot because the kids like chocolate but I'll have to try a plain hobnob I don't think I've had one for many years so <laughs> I'll treat myself after this <laughs> I think you'd be happily surprised <laughs> I will I will and I need all the surprises I can, yeah, actually that's not true I don't need any more surprises I've had a, we've all had a big one but anyway um, yes I'll, I'll get some hobnobs um, so tell me how is it going how is your lockdown how are you feeling paint me a picture um, uh, lockdown is is uh, is fine in the sense that we're very lucky um, to uh, uh, on many levels we're lucky to have outdoor space which lots of people don't have in London certainly in London so we've got a little garden which has been brilliant while it's been warm um, schooling is is interesting Elsie tends to do her own schooling and doesn't need any assistance or interference from us which is good Dexter has a slightly more anarchic and casual approach to education which um, <laughs> which I um, I'm uh, it, 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 it's, it's a slightly um, anyway he's, he's 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 a little bit more off-piste so to speak but yeah we're doing okay uh, you know um, like you said you know before we started recording you're it's such a strange and bizarre place we find ourselves in isn't it and one tries to stay positive and I, I think on the whole we're doing we're doing okay it's, What's it's about a, you? Oh, well, the same. It's pretty rubbish, isn't it? Let's face it. But um, but lots to be thankful for at the same time. I'm, I'm, I am grateful. And I'm going to say thankful that I don't have children of my own or children that need homeschooling because that would put the fear of God into me. Because, you know, especially us Peter Pan theatre people, we don't really grow up. And I feel I could just reach a hand out through history and I would still be the girl that could not write an essay on time, that could not hold yep. a pen, that could not get through my maths O level. Yep, no, I think that's very true. And I think the, the homeschooling thing reduces you to being that child very, very immediately, particularly, as you say, given what we do. Or used to do for a living. Um, I think it's very, uh, it's very, uh, it's very clear. And there are very, there are certain things that I. Uh, it's very common in our house that no one would seek my help in anything mathematical. So whenever, whenever anyone does that, it's now. I don't take any offence at all. It's a natural assumption that they would go to Sarah Jane rather than me. Um, yeah. You know, creative topics has been quite good. I've enjoyed that. Um, uh, <laughs> I think this may be I've rushed slightly too quickly to putting a film on as part of the topic so Jane said you can't just watch a film I said it's a part of the topic we were, Dexter and I watched Dunkirk the other day which is very good enjoyed <laughs> that but um, I may need to branch out but I feel I have to say though again I'm feeling lucky when I talk to friends like you know Mandy and Carl who have smaller children I think that's much harder when I look at people with tiny children I think oh that's got to be tough in lockdown uh, in, in any kind of looking after so mine in a sense are much more self-sufficient so yes oh, well respect is all I can say I think I'd be, I'd be crying before any children of mine were I'd be going I can't do this I'm born to play yes indeed, indeed. Um, Paul tell me about your first record and tell me why you've chosen it uh, my first uh, record is Slade's Come On, Feel the Noise, spelt with a Z, which I, I always liked. Um, I suppose I chose it because, again, it, it it is quite nostalgic. It goes right back to me being seven years old. And we, we used to holiday in Margate with the family. 
and we used to go every evening after our dinner in the guest house to a place called the Cliff Calf Club, Ooh. where my parents, uh, for me, it was the most exotic place in the world. As a seven-year-old from Birmingham, this was like Las Vegas. And there used to be a house band led by a man called Les Sharon, who played the drums. And every night they opened with Les singing, there's no business like show business. And then it would be a, an evening of variety, ranging from jugglers and you know various artists, and a raffle in the interval. And my mom and dad loved it, and we all did. And one particular evening, they announced there was going to be a talent competition for youngsters on the Friday. And my sort of eyes lit up, and I thought, maybe I could do something. But I didn't have any real tangible skill as such. So I was a big Slade fan at the time, and Come and Feel the Noise had been the big hit of that summer. So I thought, I'll sing that. So I, I practiced it, and my mom dressed me very inappropriately in a, in a little brown suit with short trousers and a, a, a dicky bow. And I went on, and the compass said, what are you going to sing, Sonny? And in a very thick Birmingham accent, I said, I'm going to do Slade's Come On, Feel the Noise. And uh, <laughs> and then I did it at full belt, noddy holder, full on Come On, Feel the Noise. And I didn't know this, but family kind of folklore then said my dad laughed so much that he literally fell off his seat and was on the floor laughing <laughs> so he he was a very funny man but I, I i i never made him laugh really he wasn't he was funny himself but he didn't laugh much. so i feel and i look back at that i feel i'm very proud that by being very serious and taking it very seriously i managed to make him fall off his chair and i also think it's a great song i think Slade were a great live band. I think, you know, the influence bands like Oasis. In terms of rock and roll, I think it's a good rock and roll look.
tell so much about you has just fallen into place, Paul, hearing that story. <laughs> I, I wish I could yeah. time travel. I wish I could see the small Paul Hunter seriously doing that. Amazing. Well, yes, and it stayed as a, a kind of a, a kind of family memory, I think, for many years, which uh, uh, it brought much hilarity, which is a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, tell me, tell me more about you not making your dad laugh because I don't. I think of you as somebody who can make everyone laugh. Tell me well, about that's how very, you. How <laughs> that's that a very. That's a very. Well, first of all, that's a very nice thing and generous thing to say. But I think that thing, as we all have with children, kids, you want that affirmation, don't you? And I think because I very clearly was aware of other adults laughing at dad, he was. He wasn't a. On the surface, a funny man. He he was quite serious, quite deadpan. But that obviously made certain things he said very funny. And uh, and I found that I, I thought, oh, I want to be able to do that. But in a sense, it wasn't that I was trying to. It was just a, a sense of of of, uh, of of finding it very appealing the idea of making people laugh and I suppose it, it was through my dad that I then with him I watched lots of you know old Lauren Hardy first of all and then things like Tommy Cooper and stuff like this so he, he kind of was a way he was my way introduction to that I suppose um, and again I suppose in a sense I, I was very close to my dad and I lost him quite young when I was quite young so I think that kind of feed, that taints your memory of something mm-hmm. I suppose and and now I like I, I when the times when I did laugh when he re- when he really laughed was so infectious you know sometimes when you see an, a, an adult laugh a grown mm-hmm. grown up person lose it with laughter I find it very very <laughs> heartwarming when someone a grown up is cry- those times when we end up crying literally crying with laughter as you and I have done in rehearsal rooms and I remember when we did Wise Children there was something that Patty did that made us all fall about in rehearsal I can't remember exactly what it was but the whole room was kind <laughs> of crying and unable to carry on and there's something about adults doing it that I find very infectious very heartwarming I have memories of my parents having their friends round at night and us being in bed and smelling the cigarette smoke because it was the 70s and the yep. sweet sherry and listening to them laughing. And we, me and my sister would creep out and sit on the stairs. And it was, it was the laughter that we loved. Yeah. We didn't know what yeah. we were laughing at. We wouldn't get the jokes if we were there, but there was something so wonderful that they had this secret comedy life that you- Yes, I, I agree. And you don't, you don't always as a child think about, you know, because being a parent's a serious business and I remember as a child you know I'm sure there was lots of stress and we didn't have a lot of money and all so there's not a lot to laugh about but mm-hmm. when of course you do laugh and when you do hear them laugh though that that stays with you doesn't it yeah I, I can really relate to you and your sister on the stairs for sure <laughs> and I can remember what it was in Wise Children wasn't it us trying to get Patty into the bath and, that's it and that's we it. just yeah. couldn't yeah. manage it it was so serious and it was a very beautiful bit of music and yeah. and her, yeah, that's it. and they managed to get her legs open so we were getting the full money <laughs> shot <laughs> and no, it was so was serious it. and so stupid and they were also and, really yeah. struggling with her weight I think that no, was that, that reduced that us to absolute made us all collapse absolutely <laughs> <laughs> well I'm going to take us back to, I mean, I was thinking, I don't even remember the first time we met because in the those heady days of what I guess were the 90s is there was quite a camaraderie in alternative theatre. We did meet yeah. other companies on the road and um, it felt like we knew each other, we um, appreciated each other. So I feel that you and Hayley and John at The Amazing Told by an Idiot were a company that I loved and um, respected, but I can't remember the first time we met. But I do remember the first time we worked together, which is when you came and um, came into the Red Shoes, and you yes, came down yes. to Cornwall, and yeah. um, and it was really thrilling. Actually, it was this. It was you were taking over from Luis Santiago, and you could not have been more physically dif- different, or in <laughs> fact, personally dif- different. Um, I'd. 
I was so excited to be working with you and I often curse like this because I don't curse to type but I had no idea what you were going to do with these largely non-speaking roles and it was just thrilling your soldier I can remember you deciding to be like Elvis Presley playing the soldier like oh, Elvis yes, Presley yes, yes, um, yes. Um, and then the unspoken comedy relationship you built with Mike, Mike Shepard as the storyteller yes. and just watching yes. all that grow was such a treat and before I ask you about it I'm going to play a record which you will know why I'm playing this as a particular memory from that time Hey Jude Don't make it bad Take a sad song and make it better Remember to let her into your heart Then you can start to make it better Hey Jude Don't be afraid You were made to Go out and get her The minute You let her under your skin Then you begin To make it better
Paul, would you like to explain why I chose that record? Well, that is a brilliantly remembered uh, event. When I came to, as you say, to join you for Red Shoes, we opened the show at the Acorn Theatre in Penzance. And um, I, I didn't know Cornwall at all, really, uh, until I came and joined you lot, and, 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 which was extraordinary. But I remember as we got to do the, the previews at the Acorn, I remember Mike and Giles King saying to me, oh, it's quite... Uh, quite an anarchic place the acorn and i remember saying well what do you mean you know it's quite people you know it's just a bit of a a wilder type of venue i thought okay i'm used to that sort of thing and then we we went into this art center down there and and, and it it looked like lots of art centers i suppose but the crowd were quite kind of uh, uh, you felt felt they were quite up for it when we started um but there was also a kind of vibe where it, it was very much about people enjoying the evening on their own terms as well. And one man in particular, uh, as the show went on, and the show is a brilliant show, it's one of the best shows I've ever been in, and it has quite an extraordinary soundtrack to it. Um, and I remember being on stage thinking, I don't recognise this. This, this, is there something wrong with the sound? And it then became clear to all of us that one man was singing Hey Jude during the show quite loudly. <laughs> quite insistently and no one seemed to mind it just carried on there was no sense of perhaps this man should stop or so in the midst of this wonderful often marked music and we had a man from Cornwall singing Hey Jude and what I loved about it and it was a very knee high thing was that it was fully embraced there was no sense of oh, this is terrible and this is wrong, or this is... It was just part of the event. And I don't think it in any way affected or or uh, spoils it for anybody else. He had a good time. So I've kind of... It stuck in my memory, but also that time of joining you felt like a, a real... Even though our work and your work is different in many, many ways, the connection of the spirit of what you did really really struck a nerve with me 20 odd years ago because I thought this is so celebratory it's so it's so about groups of people which is ironic where we are now but groups of people together whether it's on a cliff or in a barn or in Battersea Art Centre or wherever doing something together and sharing something and and I still remember those also moments where you just have people come and have some food and have a look at what we were doing in the the barns and I really liked the fact that that was really ad hoc it was no big deal no one could ever be precious about what they were doing so I think that memory and that uh, stayed with me a lot really and and uh, I think that connection between obviously your new company and Nehi and Tolman it feels a really a really long and warm one for me I think I agree I agree you know connection's a brilliant word you know we felt you know different in some ways but but very alike in lots of others you know your passion for impro and the moment meant that when this clearly intoxicated (laughs) chap decided to (laughs) sing hey jude you know the expression on the soldier's face was so perfect and you and mike actually played it brilliantly whilst keeping honoring the show I'll, i'll never forget it um, and, and, you know, it was a baptism of fire, really, but the one that everybody met so well. There was something so ridiculous and giggly about it. But your ability to be in a moment and not be knocked by it was was also stellar at that moment. So I, I think I knew we'd know each other for a very long time at that point. Well, well, that, yeah, it's likewise, I hope then. And it's been wonderful, that journey, for sure, yeah. Tell me about your next record and why. Uh, the next record is Miles Davis, So What, from the iconic kind of Blue album, probably one of the most famous jazz albums of all time. I think, certainly for me and, and for Tom, he's probably been, he, he and his music has been a singular inspiration over the uh, all the stuff we've done. I think the constant sense of moving forward that he had, so, you know, he created one amazing group in the late 50s, which most people would have settled for and said, okay, this is me. But then he he changed and got another group together. uh, And that was also amazing. And then at the height of that, he decided to move to something else. And I think that constant moving forward and not settling on what you have, I genuinely find a very inspirational thing. And I think he, as well as being an extraordinary trumpeter, I just think he's an amazing improviser. And 
Um, and I think some of his things he says I find very inspirational. Like, you know, don't fear mistakes, there aren't any, is a <laughs> phrase we often, and I quite like that. And, and, um, although when I say that to my 14 year old daughter, who's very, very, wants everything to be precise, she said, well, clearly that there are mistakes clearly there are. I said no it's not meaning <laughs> anyway so so I, I think he's remained a constant source of uh, provocation and inspiration and if I sometimes feel that we're repeating ourselves which inevitably we can do I, I often return to him but I think this is a classic anyway
I guessed that you'd choose Miles Davis and I'm delighted you did. What a man. And also my dad, a huge fan. So I thank you for lots of ah, reasons. Brilliant. Oh, good. good. Um, I love what you were saying about him moving on. I think about that a lot at the moment because who knows what we'll have to do. But I've also always been a little bit interested by ladders because I always think you can't stay still on a ladder. You have to go up or down. You don't stand in the middle yeah. of a ladder. And I think as artists, no. that's something we have to wrestle with. Certainly as you get into your middle years, how do you keep your integrity, but also not get stuck? And then also when you add lockdown into that, how do how what are you thinking about that what are you thinking about our ability to move forward in the future well it's interesting that i think something that you've always done and i suppose in our own way we've tried to do is and actually miles davis did i think one sense is by a constant sense of being provoked by different and new people because i think that that inevitably takes you somewhere else so whatever combination you have of people that you might regularly collaborate with, there's always new energies or new imaginations. There. And I'm more and more drawn to the notion, as one gets older, like you said, that I, I, I like that feeling of being in the room with a, with a younger energy and a younger imagination, not exclusively, but I like that part of it. Sometimes where they're more foolhardy or they don't have any uh, judgment why you wouldn't do something when you when one might feel more cautious. <laughs> so I like that. In terms of the lockdown thing, I don't. I, part of me, if I'm honest, has found myself more at the moment drawn to things that aren't necessarily theatre. I find myself looking slightly sideways, whether it's to music or to. I've weirdly been reading quite a bit of poetry and, 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 and film, and I think that sense of creatively or imaginatively moving forward, at the moment maybe it feels a bit more sideways, I suppose, because it feels, it's not that we're not thinking about ideas and trying to have ideas, but I do feel myself slightly frustrated when there's too much of a sense of trying to recreate theatre when we can't do it, if you sort of mean. It's mm. kind of it's an interesting dynamic because of course you want to remain present and everything. But so I suppose, yeah, I'm a, I'm a little bit drawn to other mediums at the moment. I Not mean, that I necessarily would, you know. It's interesting because because um, you're like me, you're an actor, a director, and an artistic yeah. director. And we're there there's not many of us but we kind of understand each other a little bit but one of the themes that runs through those of us that do that is element of control we both like a bit yeah. of control and we're in a situation where we have none absolutely yeah. none and that you know my personality rattles around in that like a sort of pinball machine sometimes me thinking what can I do how can I respond and then having to tell myself you you can't you can't second guess this this is out of your hands and that's a difficult yeah. place for me to be in no, I can completely relate to that. And, you know, one can only have so many conversations where we're going, people are saying, oh, it might be like this in three months. We don't know what it will be like. And, and sometimes you do, you, you, you're right, you do have to kind of let go of the thing that sometimes you really, you really, uh, you know, is part of your day-to-day -day living, I suppose. So, yeah, yeah. Um, let me move on to my next choice, which is yes. um, going to be the theme from The Little Match Girl. So we oh. worked together um, at the very, well, it wasn't the very end of my tenure at The Globe. It was actually, it was the first show that I made for the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse. Right. Um, yeah. We were making it in preparation for the first Christmas and I got booted out, for want of a better word, or left, whatever we want to say. Uh, right at the beginning of that process. I knew it was coming. I think I knew from the minute we started it was coming. I was very wobbly, very um, fragile and and also trying to be political at a time of great emotion. I was trying not to talk too much. Um, I, I was trying to con control that word again, the situation. And I will remember that show so much because my team of actors, which you were absolutely at the heart of, you were so kind but actually so creative at that time I feel like um, you allowed me to stay present even though I was coming in and out of all sorts of um, different focuses I mean it was such an extraordinary time of my life and I will remember it always 
for not only the generosity but the creativity and the fierce process that was um, that, that you were a huge part of at that time. So I really want to talk about it a little bit, but also say thank you, which is we made a really beautiful show in spite yes. of um, me being in one of the most extreme situations of my career. Yeah, no, it was a wonderful, wonderful time in, in terms of the show. Um, it really was, and I had extraordinary fun. And it was a really creative room of people. You know what I mean? If I think... In terms of being, if I, I haven't for a while. But going back to that that time and concentrating purely, you know, a very extraordinarily difficult time that you had, but the creativity that you released in that space with again a real mix of older and younger performers and, and uh, real imagination. And uh, I'm immensely proud of that show. I really, really am. I loved it, and I loved doing it in the Sun Maker for sure. I, I'm immensely proud of it as well. I, I think of it as a as a director because I think I usually have a firmer hand on the tiller. And I think because I was dealing with such extraordinary things, I think yeah. I, I was holding on slightly more loosely. But I think that did liberate a phenomenally creative room because everybody just yeah. in the gaps that I left, people said, "What about this? How about this?" Was I, I remember just feeling this this sense that the room was going to pick me up and make this amazing show. Um, without pushing me out and it was uh, amazing and we made something so with so many layers I mean it was yes devastating yes. political at the end and and it's and uh, thrillingly silly in the middle I mean it was it had everything yeah. didn't it and I loved I have to say I loved it for what was that was the, that was the sec, sec, yeah second show that I'd done with you um and I loved it for exactly that. I thought its boldness of tone and its shifts of tone, the confidence in being able to go from me in a ludicrous naked suit to to a very contemporary political statement was really confident. And this might sound weird because it's very unlikely parallel, but it makes me think a little bit of the work of Spike Lee, a director I really like. And if I think about, you think it's an unlikely comparison, but I think of things like a brilliant film like Do the Right Thing, very political film but it's also people think it's very very funny it's a very mm -hmm. funny film and Spike Lee talks a lot about saying I always want to make people laugh it's going to be political why can't you mix things up and I thought you mix things up brilliantly in that because I, I, I remember when you talked about the ending that there was a sense of slight nervousness around because some people go oh my god how can we go there when we've been here whereas I'm hugely believe if it's done in the right context and with the right sensitivity it's even better to go from one thing like that to something very different and I thought of all, all, well all the shows I've done with you I thought that captured that shifts of tone brilliantly thank you well thank you thank you for putting me even in the same breath as Spike Lee that's made my well, day I'm sort of like spinning I, on the I was away from that <laughs> I, well, I, it's a very unusual strange parallel to go from little match girl to do the right thing but you, you know what I I'm mean I'm having it I'm so, having it Paul <laughs> but, but what you just said is absolutely what I believe which is if you can make people laugh you can make them cry well, it's all about recognition people laugh because they recognise a human situation they yeah. project themselves into it They uh, and, and it opens yeah. up something in us and if they then you say, not only look at this silliness, but look at this tragedy. That the heart's already open. If you if you do it well, it's when the human yeah, experience is more. most porous. And also for me, when it's done purely theatrically, that is, is, is an even greater expression of that when you're doing it in the theatre. Because I remember at the end with um, who was oh, that's terrible. What was the lovely uh, Edie who was Edie, the puppeteer? Yes. Um, the final moment with Edie and, and me as uh, uh, Ole Shuttai and trying to leave and say there's no more stories and then the, the puppet insisting that I open this book and I remember thinking wow this is really and because it was a puppet and beautifully made and beautifully played and I obviously committed to it wholeheartedly I think you had a really pure moment there that you maybe wouldn't get in a slightly more conventional theatrical form it had been two actors or something something about it essentialized the, the awfulness of this moment that we were going to somehow and i think that sense of the which you've always had but a rich sense of theatricality i think in the theater makes those things even bigger i think here's the theme from the little ah, girl excellent excellent Thank you. 
Music composed by Stephen Warbeck, holding all the folk themes of loss and pain and beauty. I'd forgotten how wonderful that music was, Stephen's music was. That's, the, that's what I mean about all the elements of that show. Really heartbreaking. Yeah, very wonderful. Tell me about your next record choice and why. Uh, this is... Um, uh, in some ways, it's a strange version of a very famous song, and uh, it's Eric Clapton doing Charlie Chaplin's Smile. And like everybody, like yourselves, we were in the midst of something at a certain point of it. Uh, in some ways, we were lucky. Our show, The Strange Tale of Charlie Chaplin and Stan Laurel, was coming to the end of its uh, tour. We had two weeks to go, so we... we we were much luckier than other companies. The fact that we'd, we'd done some international touring, we'd had a good run in London. And um, even so, it still was interrupted. And it's an odd thing for work to be interrupted, isn't it? It's not how we, it, it should never be like that. Um, and we were immensely proud of, of, that, of the show that we'd made. It was, it was something where in initially I was a little reluctant because the idea was brought to us by somebody else. Uh, which is fine, but I remember thinking, does the world need another show about Charlie Chaplin and Stan Laurel and so many movies and everything? So I went to it with that question. And then once we started to unpick things in an R&D, I thought there was something there. And then we were lucky enough again, like your work, to be surrounded by some fantastic performers and uh, creative people. And it was so thrilling to make something that for me felt very poetic, very imagistic, hopefully very funny, but not in any way straightforward biodrama, anything like that. But to get audiences from Chichester to Luxembourg were really engaging with it and enjoying it. And also an opportunity for me, you know, we often have ideas as directors, don't we, about, oh, there's, there's no reason why that can't be played by that person, all that kind of thing. And the show was ostensibly about the, the, the meeting point between Chaplin and Laura when they were young men. I mean, it jumped all over the space in time and uh, but that was at the heart of it was two young men and it was about being young and I was working with Joss Huben from Complicite the brilliant Belgian performer director and he was coming over to help us with the physical comedy and he said I think you should cast two young performers as Stan and Charlie and I hadn't thought of doing that I thought I'd probably do something where you have two older really experienced performers who can play young play off but actually once I started to go down that route and then we found Amalia Vitali who played Charlie and Jerome Marshall who played Stan it was rather wonderful having them at the heart of this story and make something which is about having dreams and them going off to America so it was um, we were looking to we, we referenced the the classic song Smile that Chaplin wrote in the show and we were looking for something that played at the very end so we in the room like we were talking about different versions of this song which there are many and we listened to Elvis Costello and we thought that's quite an interesting version but then weirdly as you know something comes and Simon knows this it's sounding really someone started to play this version by Eric Clapton and we all went who's there in that version and there was something I couldn't put my finger on it but there was something about Clapton doing this that felt like the right combination. So it's it's a memory of something which is interrupted but not finished. Smile, though your heart is aching. Smile even though it's breaking. Though there are clouds in the sky. So 
I've never heard that before. It's amazing. No, it's a really weird, but somehow <laughs> was hit the exactly the, the very end of the show, and they, the the boat has arrived in New York, and Stan, young Stan and Charlie have left, and and and, uh, and then we bring up the the a real photograph of the real Stan and Charlie on this boat in 1912 or something, and that music somehow clapped, and that version felt incredibly right. It's weird, isn't it? How sometimes. It, we, people ask you these questions or how did you find that moment how did you find that and so many I think of the most powerful bits in our work certainly arrive by mistake they don't <laughs> yes. arrive by planning or someone going well I think it should be this someone does something and it's a mistake and you all go that's it it's yeah. exactly what it would be so. oh well don't get me onto it it's what I call the thrill of surprise but you have to have yeah. a room in which there's space for surprise Yes, indeed. So you do. It's, it's not happenstance. It's it's leaving the space, having the trust, having the people, yeah. and then noticing yeah. it when it happens. So there's all the skills yeah. in there. Yeah, that's true. That's Let's talk true. about wise children. So our lives touched in my knee highs days, in the Globe days, yeah. and then you were in my first production, Wise Children, playing Melchior Hazard and Gorgeous George. Talk to me about Wise Children. Well, I. Uh... I, I love the book, and uh, I, I wasn't aware that, that that your company would have the name, and then you would do that book. But I, I, I think it's a wonderful book. I think it's her best book from for my money. Um, uh, and I I remember just ring. I was on tour with uh, Napoleon Disrobe. That's right. And I remember ringing you and going, "Look, if there's anything in it for me, I'd love to come and a work with you again anyway on this new adventure." I love the material and then brilliantly and you, you, you felt the was and um, I, I I really loved it I thought you, again it was such a it's such a beautiful story of the theatre and love and chance and happenstance and memory and all of those things and part of me thought I genuinely thought this because obviously you tackled uh, Nights at the Circus which was great but I did think it was a brilliant combination of director and material I I, I, I said that a lot I thought this is sometimes that doesn't always happen but this felt like it was the right combination um, and your angle on it and then of course the joy for me because uh, of knowing of course when you sent an early script it would always change I wasn't clinging to anything or knowing what was I mean I, I think to begin with it I was very happy with you weren't sure which way around Mike and I would play the two brothers which was yes. fine although I think at playing who we were you pitched it the right way in the end I think it was better that we were those two because Mike was brilliant as Peregrine and, and I really enjoyed the ludicrousness of this Donald <laughs> Wolfing type mad person narcissist so I think you were right but it, I, I like the fact that you said no I don't know yet so I didn't know at all and I think early on that the gorgeous George Roll wasn't necessarily there at the beginning and I remember it might have been one of your producers who said oh I really like the that character and you said oh let's have a play with it at an impro and um and I knew it was obviously inspired by Max Miller, who I knew a lot about. You said, as you always do, which is brilliant, you gave space to impro. And I did an impro based around various bits of material and dressing up a bit. From that, you went, well, that, it, that's, it's great. We definitely need Gorgeous George in there. Although it did make me laugh. Coming back to Patty again. <laughs> I remember doing this sort of end of Pierce spiel, which obviously you got and the British in the room really, you know, engaged with and liked. 
And Patsy was really laughing. And afterwards, she said, I really enjoyed it. It was very funny. I have no idea what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> and it was such a brilliant thing of laughing. I have no idea. And, it, and it's mad material and everything. So and it's the rhythm, isn't that, it? He and you yeah, have the, the rhythm. rhythm of comedy. And you find yourself laughing. And you exactly. think, well, sometimes you think, I don't know what I'm laughing at. Or you think I shouldn't be laughing. But there's something about yeah. that rhythm, which you completely found in Gorgeous George, which is irresistible. Well, it was a real... And also, I think, you know, I didn't mention it when we talked about um, Little Match Girl, but I also think the, the brilliant Vicky Mortimer, and I think those two collaborations you've made with Vicky, and I'm sure there's been more, but the two that I've been involved with, has been a brilliant combination of director and design, I think. And uh, as someone who's fascinated by design, I thought Vicky was extraordinary in the way she created that world with you. And then also the license that she gave, you know, in the collaboration between designer and performer, and you're dressing up and working out what it was. And I remember her giving me a, a pith helmet early on. And I just, as we got closer to the show in the theatre, it felt a, a bit dominating. And I, I said to her, I'm not sure. And then she went, no, that's fine. Try, the, try it with your hair. And then she came up with the mad Ken Dodd back combed <laughs> hair, which was absolutely brilliant. I would never have thought of that. So that nod to Ken Dodd and her embracing something different late on rather than going, no, no, that's what it is, which is what right. you were brilliant for. And also, I have to say, I, I really loved the company. It was really, I love the fact there were a lot of dancers, young dancers and people from, you know, Matthew Bourne's company. And it felt like, I thought your take on the whole gender of how we did the story was so contemporary without in any way being naff. It, it was bedded into the story, but it was it felt really a really modern piece of theatre. And I, 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 uh, I was very well, proud it, to be part of it. It was a thrilling moment, really, because, in you know, in the wake of such upset, it was it was something that you never get, which is a fresh start. And yeah. what a fantastic yeah. challenge to an artist to say, this is my, it's a new deck of cards. How am I going to, which cards am I going to use? How are we going to play them? And how am I going to use everything that I've learnt to the best of my ability? And of course, it was filling the room with the oldest friends, the closest friends, the newest friends, a whole new, uh, and which brings me back to what you were saying about Miles Davis. It was a real moment, which is how are you going to move forward? You're not going to stand on the ladder. You're going to go up or down. And we did. We all went together. Exactly. And I also felt it, it was really lovely seeing you in a situation where the shackles were off. You know, the time towards the end, which must have been very stressful at the Globe, where you had a lot of constraints and various things happening. When we started Wise Children, it felt like you could do what you wanted to do, whatever that thing was, yeah. that, that you were a bit un unleashed, which I think I think the show had that feeling as well. It had a feeling of being unleashed. And I think I think people, from people like, the audiences responded to that, I think, in a very... Uh, visceral way I think yeah. you know when you've been ill and you've had a cold or a flu and you think I'm never ever going to feel well again and then it suddenly you don't even notice but you wake up one day and you think I'm well I've got energy I yeah. think that was my theatre equivalent of that wise children yeah. was I'm well I'm not fighting battles I haven't got yeah. you know nothing's against me I'm well and I think we danced you could feel that energy through all of the actors all of the room you know yeah. we we danced bat and yeah. we we did musical yeah. we sang we laughed it was yeah wonderful yeah. and all of which was in angela carter's book in some way the spirit of that that's why i think it was a very good adaptation because it didn't try to do the book but it captured the spirit of the book and i think that that's the skill of a good adaptation and i think you did that manage that and, and it was a really cracking night out. I had lots of friends who don't go to the theatre who said it's a great night out. And uh, I think to be entertaining is no, it's sometimes used as a slightly derogatory term, but to entertain people is not, A, it's not easy, B, it's really important. I was walking through Hastings before lockdown and some friends stayed there and there was a poster in the window of an old edition of Graham Greene's Brighton Rock and it said Brighton Rock an entertainment by Graham Greene. And I thought, well, if it's good enough, if it's good enough for Graham Greene, I'm going to try and reclaim this word entertainment. So I thought Wise Children was an entertainment, a brilliant one. Oh, well, I'm a great believer in entertainment and so are you. You're a pure theatre animal pure Paul Hunter and I love well, having you in my life and it's been fantastic the moments that our journeys have collided they've all felt completely yes. right and have enriched my well, life and my work enormously so well, before I play likewise. us out I'm going to play us out on um, 
a bit of sound design that Simon Baker puts together before we work on a show. He calls it a lesson. He just puts together scraps of ideas musically and you'll hear whispers of Max Miller coming through. So this is oh, for you brilliant. and comedy and Max Miller. But before we do, can brilliant. I say thank you? Thank you for your unbelievable talent your discipline your process and your professionalism I've never known anybody work as hard as you do all the way through a run and I thank that thank you for that your generosity your fiercely creative mind your loyalty your intellect and your friendship and most of all for having the funniest bones in the business thank you thank you Emma thank you very very much for everything and all our times and we will get together soon in a, in a real sense and, uh, and have some fun I'm sure I cannot wait I'm ready for bed now <laughs> anybody here listen he started now uh, what I want to tell you is this before I was married I was courting my wife 10 years before I was married then I went round to see her father and I looked straight at him he said, hello. I said, hello. He said, what do you want? I said, I've been courting your daughter for 10 years. He said, so what? I said, I want to marry her. He said, I thought you wanted a pension. <laughs> listen, listen. He said, if you marry my daughter, I'll give you three acres and a cow. <laughs> You're quite right. You're quite right. <laughs> I'm still waiting for the three acres. Now, <laughs> If you have a memory or connection you'd like to share on Tea and Biscuits, leave us a message on our phone line 0117 318 3846. That's 0117 318 3846. Keep checking our social media for details of our next show. Tea and Biscuits is part of Wise Children's Lockdown. Thanks for hanging out with us. Bye. <laughs>